Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. Winner of the Middle East Studies Association's 2018 Albert Hurani Book Award, Ali Reza Du stars The Iranian Metaphysicals, Explorations in Science, Islam and the Uncanny, is a mesmerizing study of discourses and practices surrounding the occult sciences or metaphysicals in contemporary Iran. Thoroughly disrupting the common association of the occult with popular religion and mystical enchantment, this book explores the complex and conflicting rationalities that inform varied metaphysical experimentations occupying a range of Iranian actors. Through a pulsating interrogation that moves seamlessly between narrative and analysis, Dustar demonstrates that the landscape of the occult sciences in Iran cannot be explained through the confining binary or opposition between state orthodoxy or paternalism and popular religion. In our conversation, we talked about a range of issues including the rationality of enchantment, geomancy, Iranian spiritists, the coalescence of pre-modern Muslim intellectual traditions with modern scientific notions of empiricism, and the negotiation of secrecy and revelation in hagiographies. The Iranian metaphysicals is an incredible scholarly achievement that will be debated and discussed for many years and will make a great text to wrestle with in the classroom as well. Here now is my conversation with Professor Ali Raza Dusdar. Hello, Ali Reza. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? Good. Very good, Ali Reza. Thank you so much uh, for your time and for this incredibly rich and multi-layered uh, book. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, look forward to not only this conversation, but also the conversations that this book will generate. Uh, so we have a tradition on the New Books Network, Ali Reza, that our first question is always biographical. Uh, could you share with our listeners a bit about your journey, uh, how you became a scholar, of Islam, anthropology, uh, Iran. Could you share with us a little about how you became a scholar? Uh, sure. So, um, you know, really, I think it was a series of accidents. Um, and the way I've tended to make sense of that retrospect- retrospectively is uh, full of cliches. I mean, I, you know, sometimes tell people that I uh, grew up between Iran and North America. I uh, had to come to grips with my own otherness at various points in my life. Um, you know, I was a child of the revolution. Um, the memory of the eight year war with Iraq is really seared in my body and mind in a way that it is for, uh, many Iranians of my generation. Uh, and I, you know, Iraqis as well. And, uh, there's, uh, a lot of other decisive moments in recent Iranian history from the presence of Ayatollah Khomeini who loomed, uh, really loomed over, uh, and towered over Iranian society and politics, uh, both in life and death. So these are all things that I've lived like a lot of other Iranians and non-Iranians. Um, and sometimes retrospectively, I think about how, uh, as a scholar of Islam in Iran, it's uh, partly what I've been doing is trying to process analytically uh, and through scholarship um, that experience and the kinds of complicated relationship that that I've had to um, these events and, and these processes which are ongoing. But I think that would be really uh, kind of a self-interested or self-serving, um, you know, ex post facto kind of retrospective understanding. But there's a, another way of 
um, grasping things, which is really that I had the privilege of access to excellent um, educational institutions in Iran and the United States. I mean, in Iran, I um, I went to one of the best universities uh, for free, uh, public um, free university. And because of my access to U.S. citizenship, I um, was able to go to an excellent university in the U.S. And so all of those things and the fact that my family um, were um, better off than average in terms of their finances, we, you know, I was able to pursue what I wanted to pursue as I wished. Um, and it so happens that I'm doing what I love and, you know, the fact that I can reflect on Islam, on Iranian politics, on religion, uh, and on anthropology, uh, as a career. Right. And, um, I think that privilege is something that too often we take for granted and, and, um, it's really important to emphasize. Uh, the anthropology part of this is really more accidental than any of the other parts. I mean, I think, uh, it, it, you know, I, I didn't even know what anthropology was until I started my master's degree um, in educational technology at Harvard University. And I happened upon a course taught in the education school, um, which introduced me to anthropology, and I just really never looked back. So afterwards. the first few questions, as I wanted to ask you are more broad and general, and then we'll get to some more specific aspects of this wonderful book. Uh, the first one, sort of a broadest uh, question, which has to do with the title of the book, The Iranian Metaphysicals. Uh, could you explain to our listeners oh, what does this refer to and how does this title connect with the larger uh, or central themes and argument that you pursue in this project? Sure. Uh, so by the metaphysicals, um, I'm I'm using that word to refer to uh, a certain concept that was used by my interlocutors, the people I worked with themselves, metaphysique, or sometimes mavara, um, both of which can be translated as metaphysical. Uh, usually when people ask me what my book is about, the shortest answer I give is that it's about the occult and the new age in Iran. Uh, but the more precise term would be metaphysics. And what I what the book is really trying to do is unfold uh, the kind of the social life of that concept um, within Iran. There's a there's a complicated relationship that this term and the way that it's lived has to classical Islamic notions like Qaib, the unseen, and Ulum Qariba or Ulum Gariba in Arabic, um, the strange sciences or the occult sciences, and also Irfan uh, or uh, mysticism. Right. So the so metaphysique as it's used. Uh, currently in Iran has a complicated relationship to these notions. And it also has a really complex relationship to modern Western esotericism. So modes of spirituality that uh, uh, have been around for a few hundred years and they're, they're in tension with older traditions, uh, Christianity and Judaism. And one of their hallmarks is that they invest substantially in uh, science, the empirical sciences as a mode of inquiry and of gaining knowledge um, about the immaterial realm and also manipulating the immaterial realm. So, you know, the met metaphysique or metaphysics is a term that brings together in complicated ways some of those classical Islamic concepts which some of, with some of these uh, European and American notions. And in the U.S. in particular, there's the concept of metaphysical religion. Uh, Catherine Albanese has done a wonderful job showing uh, what metaphysical religion in the American context is. And some of those insights can be um, uh, translated to the Iranian context and many other contexts as well. 
Now, the broad argument of the book with uh, the metaphysical is uh, trying to understand the practices through which the unseen or the invisible is rationalized. And what I mean by that is that the interlocutors um, uh, I had in my work uh, were fundamentally concerned about grasping the unseen in terms that they themselves considered to be um, compatible with reason. Now, that might have meant that it was rationally coherent in some way, that it uh, stayed away from superstition and disavowed superstition, but most importantly, that in some way it could be tested and, and, and authorized by the methods, the concepts, and as well as the virtues of modern scientific practice. Now, I was very struck um, in this book that throughout you make this insistence, a conceptual insistence, that uh, departing from you know a common uh, pursuit in the study of religion, for example, in showing the magicality of the modern or the enchantedness of modernity, you in fact were trying to do the reverse, which was to try to show the rationality uh, or process of processes of the rationalization of the enchanted rather than the magicality of the modern. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain this particular argument uh, or this conceptual stance that you adopt in the book and what are the stakes of this stance uh, for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think one of the main departure points for that is that I have serious problems with the concept of enchantment. And I think the, the, the main problem that I have is that the notion does not come out of description of of actual practices and actual forms of knowledge, but rather it's a it's a second order description. Usually, or at least it, it used to be the case that that it was uh, deployed in the mode of denigration and abjection of certain kinds of practices and forms of knowledge. And it's really through its its uh, opposite disenchantment that enchantment became uh, uh, you know a a fundamental concept in the social sciences. So, you know, I, I have problems with that term. And a lot of scholars, as you pointed out, within anthropology as well as in religious studies, have done really a fantastic job of um, recuperating so-called enchanted practices by showing that far from um, being, uh, you know, marginalized as um, uh, refuges from modernity or as some kind of form of resistance to modern practice, we have to really understand them as reflecting something and revealing something about modernity itself. And, you know, they've, they've done this in different contexts, like, for example, showing the way in which uh, the resurgence of the occult in various parts of the world can be fruitfully examined in order to understand something about the murkiness or the, the mysteriousness um, of modern forms of power uh, as they constitute the, 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 the modern state form, for example. Or they've done the same thing with uh, capitalism, right? Showing the way in which uh, capitalism, uh, far, from, far from being rational, is in fact constituted by and, and uh, experienced as murky and as mysterious and as threatening um, uh, in supernatural ways. And, you know, so here, essentially, the magical becomes a way of, um, better understanding the modern, not through some kind of inversion or opposition, but in fact through uh, similarity, right? I think that's, that's great, and there's a, there's a lot of insights that we've been able to gain from the scholarship, uh, but I think it, 
there, there's a danger there, which is that uh, too often the interest in that in in the so-called magical or the enchanted in these in these studies tends to be overdetermined by the concern to better understand modernity, right? So, um, you know, whether it's again politics or economics or science or te technology or whatever it is. So that means a kind of, uh, um, it, I mean, it happens at the expense of proper attention to the so-called magical and the enchanted itself, right? That's one problem. The other problem is that it presumes that, you know, that, that rationality is somehow the preserve of the modern and that enchantment can be universalized or can be, you know, can be translated from or kind of generalized from the enchanted so-called to the so-called disenchanted. Whereas I think it's important to pay attention to how the opposite might be the case in, in some contexts, meaning that what we take to be enchanted might actually be understood as experienced as and pursued and produced uh, in rational ways, right? So if we actually work with, say, occult specialists, uh, what do we make of the fact that they often look at what they're doing as science, right? I think it's problematic to dismiss um, what the practitioners of the occult sciences do as somehow enchanted, meaning that it's non-science, right? So I think that, that that's part of what, what really drives this work. And there's a kind of, a, what, what that involves also is a kind of a parochialization of uh, rational, you know, of rationality and of science as often understood in in its restricted sense, which is that uh, you know uh, um, uh, you know it, it, it's something that is uh, res restrictively or exclusively Western, European, uh, North American, modern, and so on and so forth. Right. So that's not to say that that uh, you know what I'm looking at the metaphysical practices of Iranians is uh, somehow isolated from from the American and the the European so on. Far from it, you know. So um, that's, I think, something that I try to make very clear, that there are very clear, very direct connections between uh, various kinds of metaphysical practice and knowledge, and, and also non-metaphysical practice and knowledge outside of Iran and those that are in Iran. But it's also important to recognize the different traditions of rationality that operate and that thrive um, in different contexts. And this is something that we can pursue both ethnographically and historically. And it's important, I think, to do both. Okay, now let's uh, come to the Iranian context. And, uh, you know, one of the major arguments that you make uh, uh, right from the introduction and then you develop it uh, throughout uh, the book is that you're really trying to disrupt this opposition or binary between some kind of a notion of a state paternalism or a state orthodoxy and then popular practice that might permeate the rest of the non-state society. Um, and uh, you really make a point that this way of approaching the Iranian context is uh, uh, problematic and uh, does not quite hold up when it comes to the interlocutors that you engage throughout the book. So I was wondering if you could explain a bit this central argument that you sustain throughout the book, this disruption of this uh, state paternalism and popular practice binary, and why is this disruption so central to the concerns of this project? I think it's central because uh, the study of the state uh, as well as the study of Islam in Iran tends to be, in my view, behind um, uh, the study of states and of religion in many other parts of the world. Um, and, and this is largely the effect of 
the Islamic Revolution and the existence of the Islamic Republic. So I think too often scholars of Iran have uh, uh, approached their work in in a way that they they're interested in uh, highlighting the ways in which the Islamic Republic is resisted or is is uh, opposed um, uh, in some fashion, you know, by the populace, and that that already from the outset uh, entrenches a certain kind of division between state and society that is really difficult to sustain. And, you know, there's all kinds of scholarship that has problematized uh, that kind of state society distinction. You know, I mean, that that's in part, that's a, that's an ideological formation uh, that comes out of uh, sort of state self-representations often. Um, and so that, that's deeply problematic. And, uh, and yet that, that, that insight has yet to fully take hold, I think, within the study of Iran and within the study of the Islamic Republic. But again, that's, that's something that I think is the product in part of uh, attempts to come to grips with the Islamic Republic as a unique uh, um, uh, religious state, right? And as one that explicitly identifies itself as non-secular. Um, and what's, you know, part of what's unique about that, and I think the opportunity that it also presents, is that the study of Islam in the Iranian context um, is different from many other contexts around the world because there are so few instances where you can draw uh, connections between what ordinary people do and the practices of the state in a way that cannot be reduced to, say, the kind of secular management of religion, right? And and you know there's 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 actually a lively um, um, uh, sort of um, uh, conversation or a lot of lively I think thinking right now around how to even conceptualize the, the management of religion in a context like Iran, right? Is it secular? Is it religious? Is it something else? So you know I, I was probably interested in complicating uh, this thinking and and asking uh, how do we understand state practices and how do we understand non-state practices or you know the practices of ordinary citizens uh when it comes to metaphysical practices and empirically what i found was that it, it is extremely difficult to create the kind of division that uh, in all kinds of other contexts um is 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 enforced right is analytically uh, implemented it's really difficult to sustain that and you know i have as as you know there's lots of examples in the book where uh, this comes to the fore. For example, you know, I have a chapter about uh, a police officer who consults an occult specialist, even as he himself has arrested all kinds of occult specialists. And, um, you know, I mean, it, it, in a different context, you know, if I were studying the mob, let's say, you know, the mafia or whatever, this would not have been super surprising. Um, somehow in the context of the management of religion, it, it, it appears to be jarring. And, and I, I, I try to kind of show why this should not be so surprising. And at the same time, what, you know, what insight we gain from it. And, you know, once we look at this historically also, um, the kinds of practices that I'm describing predate um, or have their origins in forms of knowledge and forms of practice that predate the existence of the Islamic Republic. So it's not unusual that once the Islamic Republic comes into existence, um, it, it, it's, it's not really um, possible to affect a clear-cut division between one and the other. One last thing that I'll say is, and by one and the other I mean Islamic State on one hand and then popular practice on the other hand. 
one last thing that I'll say is that uh, when it comes to something like the management of superstition, right, there's a strange, um, uh, there, there can be a kind of a strange affinity between a scholarly understanding of popular resistance versus state suppression and the way that the Islamic State itself represents itself, right? That we are interested in, you know, the state is interested in implementing rationality and then it's superstitious, gullible, you know, ordinary, uneducated people who are our targets, right? So that, that division is kind of reinstantiated um, by the state itself. Let's uh, shift a bit to some specific uh, case studies that come up uh, in this book. Uh, let's begin uh, with a an example that comes in the earlier half of the book. Uh, could you talk a bit about and explain to our listeners uh, the figure of the Ramal and the, uh, the kind of practice that uh, she is involved in? And you make a case that this figure threatens uh, varied conceptions of normative religion or normative religiosity populating the Iranian public sphere. So let's begin with this, uh, in, in this part of the question, what is the figure of the Ramal and how does she threaten these conceptions of uh, normativity uh, in the Iranian public sphere? Sure. Uh, so the Ramal is an occult specialist and technically what the word means is a geomancer. So the geomancer is someone who practices geomancy, which is a form of divination. And uh, Ramals typically do a lot more than just geomancy. Some of them don't do geomancy at all, and yet that term is something that has stuck. Uh, so um, that's why I, I often use the word occult specialist to refer to the Ramal. The way that the Ramal threatens normative religion is really by revealing the ambiguities at its core. Um, so normatively, there's a question about whether uh, humans can traffic with extraordinary forces uh, like jinn, sorcery, uh, astral powers, and, and so on. Um, can, can, can humans traffic with these forces in, in dealing with their everyday problems? And if they can, should they, right? So is the ability uh, sort of there? Are humans actually able to do this? Is, do these forces exist and do humans have access to them on the one hand? And if they have access to them, should they do these things, right? Uh, the concept of superstition essentially is a label for an incorrect answer to this question, right? Now, what that incorrect answer is, uh, is not stable. There are many different answers that are given to this question. So some people with um, power as figures of authority religiously, um, as well as intellectually, as scientists, as public speakers, as uh, participants in the public sphere, they argue that these forces don't exist at all. You know, there are no jinn, there is no sorcery, there is no astral power of the sort that astrology, say, deals with, and so on. Um, others will say, no, they do exist, or some of them exist and some of them don't exist, but, you know, we need to be really careful about how we approach these things, or perhaps we should not approach them at all. Um, so, you know, the discourse of superstition is something that is really fundamental to our understanding of uh, normative religiosity, um, but it's extremely ambiguous. And one of the ways in which that ambiguity uh, um, can be understood is if we pay attention to the ways in which something like the science of geomancy is extremely central to uh, the Shia Islamic tradition, 
and not just the Shia tradition. So if you once we expand beyond geomancy and look at the full scope of practices that have to do with the unseen and with the occult, there's all kinds of things that have been recognized and sometimes even valorized in various parts of the Islamic tradition, whether that be exorcism, whether that be dream interpretation, uh, whether it be working with talismans and so on and so forth. So, you know, in an Islamic Republic, you, you have the problem of, uh, or the, 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 um, the people in charge of developing normative conceptions of religion, they have a problem uh, that they have to deal with, which is how do we define rational religion and how do we define superstition, right? So where does the Ramad, where does the practice of geomancy fall within this categorization? And the answer is, it, it, it's a very ambiguous position. It doesn't really fall neatly into either one of those. Right? Um, so, you know, as soon as, as, soon as people try to, um, uh, let's say, um, legislate against the Ramad, they have to deal with the fact that there are high-ranking clergy who also practice geomancy or who have written treatises on geomancy, right? Do we denigrate what they do as superstition, you know, or do we keep it quiet or do we do something else? So that ambiguity is really important. And, um, you know, one of the things I try to deal, do in the book is to talk about how uh, there are ways of dealing with that ambiguity, including through uh, the development of caution, right? So caution as a virtuous practice and as a virtuous mode of comporting oneself, which is, which you can see, um, uh, you can see articulated or at least expressed in public discourse, um, if not explicitly articulated all the time. But that's one way in which the ambiguity of something like Ramal and of Ramal um, is dealt with. In the next, uh, continuing with this theme, in the next uh, few chapters, you uh, uh, show the sort of processes of rationalization that have been put into place or operationalized by different kinds of actors, including religious leaders and intellectuals and state officials, uh, to police, as you call it, such practices as geomancy or, or uh, Rammel. Um, I was wondering, I, mean, I know this is a very uh, broad question and we'll try to encapsulate sort of multiple chapters into one, but I was wondering if you could give some highlights of how this kind of policing takes place uh, on the part of these different actors. And you also show as part of this exposition that as much as they try to police such practices, in that policing, certain kinds of uh, 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 fissures also come into central view that are equally productive in terms of how we think about the ambiguities surrounding practices like Ramal. So I was wondering if you could sort of combine those two threads of uh, your analysis. Sure. So I think, uh, I mean, in, in the broadest terms, we can say that the way that, uh, um, that, that rationalization has been operationalized, as you put it, is um, on the one hand discursive, and on the other hand, it's through disciplinary and coercive practices. And I don't mean the same thing by those two, but you know, I, I'm kind of bunching them together. So discursively, there's the, uh, the attempt to, as I was saying earlier, demarcate and um, um, enclose and bracket off the superstitious, right? And this is not a new thing. It's not about the modern state. It has a very long history. Anytime, you know, in any discipline, that reason has figured a central place, then unreason has also been something that um, has been defined in some form and defined out, as it were. Uh, 
you know, with, with modernity, you have a particular salience that is granted to the concept of superstition and to the concept of unreason, which gives it a certain kind of developmental force, right? I mean, it's, it's something that, so unreason is something that is holding the nation back. Uh, it's something that needs to be overcome in order for the nation to progress and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's something that discursively has been always important. Um, on the other hand, you have once superstition is discursively articulated, then you also have the attempt to discipline it uh, and to subjugate it, and sometimes through coercive means, sometimes through legislation, and so on and so forth. Uh, this, again, is not restricted to the Islamic Republic. It has a much older tradition, at the very least from the early 20th century, but, but there are older histories as well that go back to the medieval period. Um, so in the, um, but I'm, I'm just going to stick to the modern period. So in the, the early 20th century, you have legislation against public practices of fortune-telling, dream interpretation, exorcism, and so on, that uh, were implemented essentially directly as borrowings from and translations from the Napoleonic Code uh, from France. And there's a direct borrowing of um, a civil, uh, civil punishments for practicing um, such things in the open. Uh, and then with the Islamic Republic, you have, you have a kind of a, um, at a certain point in the, in the mid-2000s, you have an enhancement and a, and a, and a kind of um, uh, uh, intensification of some of these punishments. Now, the fissures that open up, uh, so I mentioned some of them earlier. I think what I'll highlight here is to say that, um, you know, on the one hand, you have concepts like geomancy, the occult sciences, jinn, exorcisms of jinn, and so on, that play a central role in uh, Islamic cosmology and that cannot easily be written out. But this is not, strictly speaking, an Islam a problem within, say, Islamic cosmology. Even in so-called secular context, this is an issue. So you have, for example, in uh, the mid-20th century, you have Marxist intellectuals uh, writing against religion, writing against mysticism, against so-called superstition, and so on. And yet at the same time, and in the very same breath, uh, valorizing certain laboratory parapsychological experiments, um, uh, largely in my mind because these, these were, um, at the time, being pursued in the Soviet Union and in the United States as well and many other places. So even in secular contexts, it's not always been easy to, to, to um, separate out the superstitious from the scientific or the rational where the unseen has been, has been, uh, has been present, right, and, and has been an issue. And in the practical domain, in the legislation and in the coercive dimensions, it, it again goes back to the issue that I was talking about earlier. You know, you, you can't easily get rid of things that uh, um, cannot so easily be pinned down, right? I mean, again, if you have a clergy, if, if, you, have a, uh, if you have a high-ranking Ayatollah who himself is interested in the occult, right, what do you do with that? You know, uh, it's, easy, it's easy enough to say this rural backward charlatan who's practicing fortune-telling, you know, is, is, uh, needs to be kept in check or needs to be punished and so on and so forth. But the, then you have the problem of deciding who's the charlatan and who's the genuine practitioner of the occult. And as far as state practitioners are concerned and state officials are concerned, they don't want to come out and say, here's the right way of doing the occult and here's the wrong way of doing the occult, right? That opens up a huge can of worms. Um, and by the way, that can of worms has been opened in other countries, right? There are, you know, uh, um, there's the example of uh, Peter Geschieri's work in Cameroon, for example, where 
the legal system employs witch doctors to identify uh, cases where actual witchcraft has occurred, right? But that that hasn't happened in Iran, and and I think that's a for that reason a certain kind of ambiguous status quo maintains. But then the problem becomes how do we practically deal with such ambiguous situations? Let us shift to another uh, case study or a phenomenon that you extensively analyze, and that is. Uh, uh, spiritism, and I'll have you sort of uh, explain to our listeners what is spiritism, and um, you know what are its beginnings, and how does it become a prominent part of the Iranian religious landscape. Uh, one of the things that I found most interesting and uh, uh, productive in your analysis of spiritism was the way you showed how major Iranian spiritists and also their skeptics or their antagonists, um, how did they, how they, uh, in some ways, try to bring together or try to uh, create a very interesting uh, synthesis between pre-modern Muslim intellectual traditions and modern scientific notions of empiricism and empirical knowledge that, again, I think you're kind of undermining or disrupting this kind of binary between pre-modern Islam and, and sort of modern science and its empirical knowledge and uh, foundations. So I was wondering if you could also explain that conceptual argument as part of your answer to uh, this phenomenon of spiritism and, and what it represents. And perhaps if you could give an example also, that would be terrific. Absolutely, sure. So uh, let me just say first that uh, uh, it took me quite a while. I mean, it was actually towards the end of writing my dissertation that I discovered the history of spiritism in Iran. Um, earlier on in my project, the ethnographic bits, what I had found was um, various alternative spiritual practitioners, um, many of them interested in spiritual forms of therapy, who were, uh, who in some way uh, engaged with practices of trance or practices of spirit possession. Uh, so, for example, cosmic mysticism, Irfan Kehani or Irfan Halqe, is this extremely popular group uh, in Iran, and it, it's now spread outside of Iran as well. And uh, they have a therapeutic practice that they call simontology. It's their word. Or uh, another term they have for it is defensive radiation or which basically is a form of exorcism. And they explicitly articulated uh, as exorcism and as uh, related to Catholic forms of exorcism. Right. So uh, and, and they do and they also articulate their practice as distinctly uh, scientific. Right. So I was interested in finding out where the roots of some of these practices were. And later on, I realized that spiritism was an early precursor of this. Now, what is spiritism? Uh, in the way, in its Iranian incarnation, spiritism is uh, a French import. So in France, in the mid-19th century, you have the development of uh, a, a scientific-slash-religious um, tradition essentially based around communications with the souls of the dead. And this has connections to spiritualism, which is uh, an Anglo-American um, uh, tradition also emerging in the mid-19th century. And uh, what happens in the, in the French context is that it's, it, it becomes much more developed as a form of religion rather than just communication with the souls of the dead. So one of the things that happens in France, for example, is that it, it takes on uh, the uh, um, a doctrine of reincarnation, right? So somebody dies um, and then they're reincarnated, but in the space between their first death and their, their next birth, they exist in a, a certain kind of plane 
where you can access them. And this accessing happens either through mediums, humans who enter into some kind of trance state, and then they speak as, or they, they allow the speaker to, they allow the soul or the, the spirit to speak through them. Or it happens through other kinds of communication, like through the Ouija board, right? Um, or through uh, uh, turning tables, the earliest form. Uh, wrappings in, in various furniture, and so on and so forth. Now, what happened in Iran in the early 20th century was that you had certain Iranian elites, primarily Francophone, who had, who had gone to study in France, uh, who began to practice this as a scientific religion. That's their understanding. And um, the main idea for them was that in order for us to have an objective, uh, um, trustworthy form of morality and ethics, um, we need to derive that ethics empirically. What does that mean? It means that we use things like turning tables and mediums to access the souls of the dead and ask them what they did right and wrong and how that has affected their prospects through their reincarnation. So this became a, 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 an elite practice in the early 20th century. Um, there was the first post-constitutional mayor of Tehran, Khalil Khan Sarafi. He established an, a society for experimental spirit science that was frequented by uh, many of the elites of the time, politicians, military leaders, um, and so on. And, uh, and then, you know, gradually that society uh, dissipated, but then the practice was taken up in all kinds of other, in all kinds of other contexts including by uh, avowed uh, Muslims and by Sufis as well, who didn't care so much about the doctrine of reincarnation necessarily. Uh, some of them did, some of them did not. Uh, but they found the method of empirical contact with the spirits of the dead to be significant. Right? Now, where this concerns Islamic scholars in particular, so sh the Shia ulama coming out of Qom, is uh, a few contexts where arguments about the empirical verifiability of the souls of the dead uh, became issue an issue for them, uh, e either in a positive way or in a negative way. So one of the examples for this is in 1944, when Ayatollah Khomeini himself, the uh, future leader of the Islamic Revolution, uh, he wrote a treatise called Kashf al-Asrar, an immensely uh, important and, and, and also well-known treatise, where he's arguing against a whole bunch of anti-clerical intellectuals, uh, including um, Kasravi, Hakamizadeh, and, and one or two others. And uh, one of the points that he makes is that the souls of the dead actually exist and they, they, they outlast their bodies, their material bodies. And one way that we know this, Khomeini says, is through the experiments of spiritists. Right? And he quotes not the Iranian spiritists, but European spiritists. And he does so in, in secondhand by quoting from an encyclopedia written by uh, Muhammad Farid Wagdi, uh, who was an Egyptian intellectual in the early 20th century. And he, he wrote extensively about this issue as well. So what was interesting for me, uh, you know, I mean, there's lots of things that's interesting about this, but one of the things in which you highlighted, and I, and I, and I kind of want to just emphasize a little bit, is uh, the epistemic... Um, uh, the things that we learn about epistemology, about Islamic epistemology and scientific epistemology from this one particular episode and other episodes like it that followed. Uh, so, you know, the souls of the dead from within the Shia Islamic tradition, they are immaterial entities, right? They're not, they're not things that you can access materially. And yet, 
there's a certain kind of materialism in spiritism um, to the extent that they, they, the spirit has material effects. It makes, Im, it, 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 it makes impressions in certain um, uh, substances. Uh, it can actually be seen um, if it's uh, surrounded by a, 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 a certain kind of shell, which they call the perisprit. Uh, and so on. And but the the transfer of of that kind of definition of the spirit as in some way material, even if subtly so, into the Islamic uh, context and into the Islamic understanding of the soul involves a certain kind of epistemic transformation. And I'm interested in the book and in expounding on that um, through notions like um, Tajriba, right? So uh, experiment and how experiment was understood classically and how that notion shifts um, under in the hands of someone like Khomeini and others who followed him, uh, as well as the notion of Tawatur, so the a concept having to do with um, a testimony. So repeated testimony, this is primarily in, in, in the disciplines of Hadith, uh, one of the ways in which we know that a hadith is trustworthy, or hadith scholars know that a hadith is trustworthy, is if it's repeated through different lines of transmission. Now, somehow that notion of tawatur comes up in uh, reporting the testimonies of European scientists about the existence of the souls of the dead and about their disembodied existence. Right. So I'm really interested in understanding how it is that that classical notion uh, is transformed or is stretched, uh, is contorted somehow in order for it to be able to accommodate this new kind of evidence and this new kind of entity, right? Which is the spiritist conception of the soul. Terrific. Uh, so towards the end of uh, the book, Aliraza, you focus uh, quite extensively on the, the uh, genre of hagiographies and hagiography writing. Um, and in this section of the book, you were especially interested in the question of how these hagiographers, uh, whom you focus on, uh, negotiate the tension between uh, for lack of a better categorization, between secrecy and revelation, between um, uh, what to reveal to the public and what to conceal. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about uh, who are these hagiographers whose work you focus on uh, and uh, what does uh, uh, analyzing this genre do for the purposes of this book and how do you analyze this particular negotiation of uh, secrecy and revelation uh, this delicate balance that you that you analyze. Uh, how do, how did these actors go about uh, doing that? Sure. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really complicated question. <laughs> um, so, uh, the, as you said, the third part of the book is about hagiographies of um, the Oliya or the friends of God, and um, one of the reasons that I'm really interested in these figures is that. Uh, a whole new line of hagiographies began to be published from the early 1990s onward. Uh, some of them a bit, starting a bit earlier. And so, I mean, you have hagiographies uh, in the Islamic tradition for a very, very long time. And in Iran as well, they've been published for a very long time. But these particular hagiographies were new, um, primarily because of their subject matter. These dealt with contemporary or near-contemporary Shia Muslim, primarily men, one or two women, but mostly men. And what was especially distinctive about them was that these were men who were not known to be revolutionaries, and they were not known to be political even. And uh, what, what's significant about that is that 
the publication of these hagiographies begins, as I said, late 80s, early 90s, which is when the war with Iraq uh, is wrapping up and it's come to an end. And you have a period of uh, post-war reconstruction and normalization, right, economically, politically, culturally, and so on. So there's a sense that new times require new uh, ethical models. And some of these uh, friends of God fill the shoes of the new models. Uh, the people who are writing about them, there's really a wide range. Uh, you have ordinary uh, activists who are not political activists, but activists for essentially for morality and political through that, but not they don't self-define what they do as political, and certainly they're not partisan. And what they're concerned about is moral decline after the war. Uh, and some of them are, are, are concerned with moral decline in general. They feel like, for whatever reason, the Islamic State project has, uh, has, has created certain kinds of difficulties in the practice of morality, and that that has driven away the youth from proper embodiment of Islamic values. And these problems can be addressed in part by developing new and attractive models for the youth. Now, so some of these are some of these authors are outside the structures of the state, and yet they benefit. Some of them benefit from uh, state support in one way or another. And now that's that's not uniform. There are uh, institutions within the state that support them, and then other institutions that uh, uh, oppose them. And and that itself is something that shifts depending on who's in power in which institution. And then you also have people who are themselves associated with the state in some way. So. Um, Ayatollah Reh Shahri, for example, who used to be an intelligence minister and a presidential candidate, he wrote one of the most popular hagiographies about Sheikh Rajab Ali Khayyat in the 1990s. And uh, it was essentially through his uh, authorship of this text that Sheikh Rajab Ali became a popular mystic and, and his grave became a site for visitation and for, um, uh, you know, um, sort of shrine visitation and pilgrimage and so on and so forth. Now, the difficulty here is what, you know, one part of what I'm interested in, and this is, this gets back to the question of rationality, is that the figure of the mystic and the values of the mystic and the moral uh, achievements of the mystic, which also have supernatural counterparts in that the mystics achieve a certain state, uh, spiritually and morally speaking, and uh, because of those achievements, the mystics then receive certain supernatural gifts from God. They, get, they gain the power of healing, of um, mystical insight, of teleportation, and so on and so forth. So now these hagiographies are, uh, again, to get back to the rationality question, they're being deployed in order to create certain kinds of effects. And there, So there's, there's a certain kind of instrumental deployment of the hagiography in order to create or to foster a certain kind of Muslim subjectivity. Um, in order to promote return to, to, to Islamic values and to kind of win back the youth and so on and so forth. The problem is because these texts are being printed and the hagiography is uh, essentially being deployed in a mass media context, you have uh, a difficulty of um, adapting the earlier models of of transmission and of discretion about what you say, what you tell whom, um, adapting that to a context of mass media reception, right? So, uh, you know, 
specifically, let's say, with the, with the, with the problem of supernatural powers, uh, within hagiographies, classically speaking, there was a recognition that these things are not always suited for every listener or for every reader, right? So we have to be extremely cautious as authors about what we say, how we say it, and who hears us saying the things that we're saying, right? So in the hagiographies, you see this tension playing out um, sometimes through disputes between different authors. You have one author who, uh, you know, really has no qualms, no restrictions about saying everything. And then you have another author who comes out and says, well, you know, X author has been uncautious about what he's saying. And that lack of caution uh, can backfire. It can turn people away. It can make people disenchanted because they'll think, you know, this is all just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Um, you know, the people who are not primed to understand these things will not understand them and so on. So that's one place where this discretion issue um, and secrecy is really important. Another one, which I'll just briefly mention, is the question of politics. So even though these hagiographies tend to focus on people who, who supposedly had no um, active political lives, they're still about people who had political tastes. And some of them did make political statements. And these political statements were not always easily uh, reconcilable with the interests and the, the, the kind of the dominant forms of orthodoxy, political orthodoxy, let's put it that way, in the Islamic Republic. So how to deal with that challenge uh, becomes an issue. And there's, there are battles that are waged over claiming a particular mystic um, for, let's say, the pantheon of the Islamic Revolution or the Islamic Republic, and then counter attacks, um, both from within the ranks of supporters of the Islamic Republic and others who are critics. And I should mention to our listeners as as we approach the next uh, question, Lelil Reza, that uh, this book does contain extensive, detailed, and fascinating narratives of uh, uh, some of these occult practices, these spiritists in, in, in action, and uh, uh, I guess the uh, the time that we have and the medium of the podcast does not allow to go into the details of the amazing narratives that are that are uh, 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 present in this excellent uh, book. So that is something that listeners will have to um, uh, read uh, on, on on getting their hands on the book. Actually, connected to that to that um, uh, to that point, um, I'm sure this is a question that you must be asked a lot. Um, but this is something that you also talk about in the book. So uh, hence, I thought uh, this would be a good last uh, substantive question to ask, which is, Elias, uh, your meditations on your own positionality in relation to these uh, interlocutors and their practices. Uh, you know, many of which you were intimately. Um, uh, if not involved with, but 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 uh, you know, a, a sort of participant too. So I was wondering, what kinds of um, thoughts did you have in terms of the methodological question of your own positionality in relation to these interlocutors and these practices, and what you say about that in the book also? Sure. Uh, yeah. So um, there's a few ways of entering this this question. Uh, and I, and I think the two can come together. One is asking about my own kind of affective entanglement with the project. And the other is to ask about my uh, epistemological stance, right? And, and the two come together like this. Um, on the one hand, from an epistemological standpoint, right, the, the typical kind of anthropological representation of the positionality of a 
Western educated scholar who goes and studies these things is that they are skeptics, right? And now sometimes that skepticism is challenged in some way. And the, you know, the best anthropological writing um, on topics having to do with witchcraft, the occult, and so on and so forth, in some way attempt to deal with uh, the, the kind of um, the uh, um, um, the the sort of the, the 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 inability to fully inhabit the skeptical position because of some experience or another, right? And this goes back at least at the very least it goes back to um, Evans Pritchard's work in, in witchcraft oracles and magic among the Azande. And it kind of there's there's sort of a lively set of reflections on this over time. So um, you know the the position of the skeptical uh, anthropologist, and then from the the affective issue, it's you know how do how does one and there's there's a lot of reflection on really how people get entangled with what they're doing, and you know uh, because we are as scholars our own instruments, you know, and we're human beings, and there's all kinds of ways that we you know we can't just be sort of cool. Um, coolly distanced um, uh, laboratory professionals. And laboratory professionals are not that either. But in any case, so uh, early on in my research, I kept on hearing from people, when I told them that I was working on the occult, uh, I would hear from various people that I had to be really careful and that what I was looking at was dangerous and that it could cause madness, it could cause scandal, it could cause um, uh, misfortune, uh, danger to my family, and so on and so forth. And over time, you know, I mean, this was a new topic. I had not really worked on the occult. I didn't have an experience, any experience of the occult as I was growing up or, you know, um, it, it was entirely new to me. Uh, over time, this had an effect on me. And I actually was worried about whether what I was looking at could have some kind of dangerous uh, repercussion for me. And, um, and, and this was still even before I began my field work. And there was a point which I described in my introduction when I had a really uh, terrifying dream. And, uh, um, and I realized after that dream that the only way I could continue to do this research was if I was able to control such instances and control my own kind of affective involvement. And what I decided was that I would do that by inhabiting a skeptical position and by actively distancing myself from belief in the things that I was looking at. So, you know, I, yes, I was someone who was skeptical about what I was looking at, but that skepticism didn't begin from some position of, uh, you know, rationally developed um, doubt about the supernatural. It was something that was very intimately connected with my own terrifying experience. And it was something that I had to repeatedly in the course of the research um, kind of check and recalibrate. There were a few instances which I actually don't talk about in the book. There are a few other instances where I had to kind of recalibrate that because I felt like if I did not, then, um, you know, there would be issues there or, or I was just too scared. You know, I was scared and then I had to somehow deal with that, um, that, that fright, uh, that terror, um, you know, and, and, and the broader kind of what I, what I did with this more broadly in the book was to talk about the way in which, um, to use to really use this as one example among several of thinking about the ways in which uh, reasoning, rationality, argumentation, uh, the pursuit of inquiries of various sorts, the pursuit of knowledge, are always in some way entangled with the emotions. 
and with affect. Now, sometimes these are undisciplined emotions and sometimes they are disciplined emotions. We cultivate certain kinds of affective dispositions in order to be able to pursue knowledge in a certain way. Now, the, the kind of skeptical distancing that I developed, that was one stance, and then there are many others. You know, virtuous caution is one, the state of wonder and, and of astonishment is another, and there are various others. So I, I really tried to kind of take that problem of positionality and to fit it within a broader framework of understanding the relationship between affect and of reason. So as we're coming towards the end of our time, Anirazak, could you uh, share with our listeners uh, what are you thinking as uh, the next uh, project? I'm doing several things. Um, the project that's most occupying me right now is one about, uh, broadly speaking, the tensions between revolution and state in Iran. Uh, there's been plenty that's been written on the Islamic Revolution, and there's been plenty that's been written on the Islamic Republic. We don't have as much uh, thinking that tries to understand revolution beyond just the moment of 1979 as a structure of political action, as a kind of uh, political and moral horizon um, that is felt in everyday political practice and everyday political imagination. And the tensions between that and uh, the, the, the nation state form, the, the form of the modern state. So I'm trying to grapple with that in a kind of a historical and ethnographic project. And I do that through primarily, I mean, I'm in the early stages still, but I'm doing it primarily through the lens of various occult and supernatural uh, ex, uh, uh, phenomena. So the chapter that I'm working on right now, for example, looks at the miraculous and the discourse of the miraculous from the early revolution onward and some of the inversions of that, including a moment in 2011 when then-President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was uh, accused by some of his his own supporters of having been bewitched by his closest confidant. And I'm trying to understand how it is that something like an accusation of sorcery becomes legible as a political concept uh, and how we can understand that in relation to revolutionary politics and transformations in revolutionary politics and the political theology that enables and is sustained by revolutionary politics. The Iranian metaphysicals, Explorations in Science, Islam, and the Uncanny by Ali Reza Duzdar, published by Princeton University Press in 2018. Thank you so much, Ali Reza, for this fascinating and incredibly rich uh, book. And uh, uh, I look forward to the multiple conversations that it will generate. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for your time today on the New Books Network. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. So this was my conversation with Professor Ali Raza Duzdar about his brilliant new book, The Iranian Metaphysicals. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please join us again next time for another fresh episode of New Books and Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh...